Mr. Chief Justice, the police of the court. I knew from the sound of her voice that that quiver in her speech, as if she really didn't want to say what she was about to say, that I was about to hear one of two things. Either your brother is dead, or he's in big trouble. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. The law is fascinating. It starts with the Constitution, which sets up the parameters, the rules for how our society is going to be governed. And then there are lawyers and advocates, judges and courts, who work to either enforce it and back it up or change it. And there are legal and social scholars in our society who work behind the scenes, doing extraordinary research for years and decades to get to the heart of the history, the evolution, the practices and potential of the law in a society to create a better society. To celebrate our 100th episode at Life of the Law, we're presenting a very special live law event, Law in Translation, a co-production of Life of the Law and the National Science Foundation. The five storytellers you're going to hear are men and women who were so deeply interested in and curious about the law that they became scholars at universities and successfully proposed and received funding from the federal government through the National Science Foundation to do research that will help us all better understand the law. But what's it like to translate that social scientific discovery to the general public? We begin Law in Translation with Thomas Keck, a professor at Syracuse University. His interest in the law began when he was just a child with the question, who benefits from free speech? I grew up in an era of conservative courts. By the time I became aware of the U.S. Supreme Court, it was controlled by justices who had been appointed by presidents like Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, and the first President Bush. I eventually learned about the great liberal history of the Warren Court, but that wasn't the era I grew up in. In fact, my earliest memory of a court is a story of conservative courts. It's a story from Baltimore, and it's not about my own family's run-ins with the justice system, which is surely a sign of significant racial and class privilege. It was election day, and my mom and I were standing on a street corner, holding signs urging people to vote for a rent control ordinance that was on the ballot. I think I was five or six years old, so my mom had to explain to me what rent control was. And a few weeks later, she had to explain that we had won the election, but that the law had been struck down in court. I'm sure that didn't make much sense to me at the time. But in hindsight, it's always stuck with me as a reminder that courts can be agents of power and privilege. There may well have been some technical legal defect with the rent control ordinance. I don't know. I was five. But it may also be that the city's landlords had greater access to justice than the city's renters. Fast forward to when I was 19 or 20. I was an undergraduate political science major at Oberlin College. I took constitutional law with the legendary professor Ron Kahn, who is still teaching today. And I was repeatedly drawn to reading and writing about conservative legal movements, because that seemed to be where the action was at the time. Eventually, I became a constitutional scholar myself. And for the past two decades, I've studied the uses of constitutional litigation in U.S. courts by political actors on the left and the right. In particular, I've emphasized the interactions between such competing legal claims, and I've investigated whether courts respond to them in similar ways. In recent years, I've studied these dynamics in the context of issues like abortion, affirmative action, gay rights, and gun rights. Free speech was a natural extension of this research agenda because it's regularly deployed across the political spectrum. Every political actor you can think of sometimes invokes the freedom of speech. That's not true of all constitutional rights. If your constitution protects the right to housing, that tends to get invoked only by people who don't have houses. But free speech gets invoked by everyone. Initially, I thought this next project would be U.S.-focused, as the earlier ones had been. But I had increasingly been reading some of the fabulous, comparative, cross-national work on courts being produced by colleagues and friends, who were investigating some of the same questions I'd long been interested in, but looking at constitutional courts around the world. One of the big debates in this literature is about the downstream effects of judicialization. If you draft a written bill of rights and empower a constitutional court to enforce it, what sort of political actors benefit from this arrangement? Free speech is a great window onto this debate. It's included in almost every written constitution in the world, 184 at last count, and again, it's invoked by everyone. So I decided to make this next project a cross-national one, and NSF support enabled me to do this in ways that would not otherwise have been possible. 
The prospect of NSF funding helped me recruit a number of collaborators, and the actual grant in hand helped me recruit even more. With a great collaborative team in place, we were able to pitch to NSF that we would look beyond the usual suspect courts that are most often studied in the U.S.-based comparative courts literature. So my collaborators and I sat down and came up with the list of courts that we wanted to look at. The list is long, and collectively, these courts published their decisions in 15 different languages. There's no single academic department anywhere in the country that houses the necessary language skills and country expertise to study all of these courts. But with a collaborative grant from NSF, we are able to bring together scholars from multiple institutions with expertise on multiple courts. This team includes scholars who can read French, Spanish, German, and Korean, and we are able to hire a diverse team of research assistants that has expanded our collective language skills still further. The project is still in its early stages, and we don't yet have findings to report on the big-picture question of who benefits from judicially enforceable free speech guarantees. But the project is already opening up a wide range of collaborative research inquiries. With one set of colleagues, I'm working on a macro-historical paper comparing free expression jurisprudence across the 19th and 20th centuries. In most of the world, free expression law is a post-World War II phenomenon, but there's an earlier history in the U.S., and both the Argentine and Norwegian Supreme Courts have cases dating to the mid-19th century as well. I didn't know this, and I've now mentioned it to dozens of U.S.-based scholars, and so far, none of them knew it either. With another set of collaborators, I'm investigating free speech and Global South constitutionalism. A number of Global South democracies have very active constitutional courts. South Africa, India, Colombia. All of these courts have developed a rich body of free speech law, but no one has any idea what kind of political actors are benefiting from these rulings. Well, there are lots of people on the ground in each country who have a pretty good idea, but no one has studied it systematically across these courts or compared the patterns there with what we see in the global north. With yet another set of collaborators, in this case, one of my doctoral students at Syracuse, along with a former student who now teaches at Weber State, I'm looking at the judicial protection of anti-judicial speech. I'm going to let that phrase sink in for a second. The judicial protection of anti-judicial speech. What does that mean? Well, there's a long history of free speech conflicts regarding anti-government speech. In the U.S., for example, there's a famous early conflict about whether Congress could pass a law making it illegal to criticize the president. And it turns out there's a long history of similar disputes about the freedom to criticize judges. For example, a U.S. Supreme Court case from 1907 involving an editorial cartoon denouncing the Colorado Supreme Court for its blatantly partisan participation in a stolen gubernatorial election. The cartoon depicts the state Supreme Court justices executing populist Democrats from the bench. One of them is holding an executioner's axe, and there's a shelf behind him holding the ashes of Democrats who have already been slaughtered. If you think about this sort of free speech conflict for a minute, it seems clear that if judges exercise significant state authority, as they surely do in many democratic states, then the people have to have some freedom to criticize those decisions. If the press finds evidence of judicial partisanship or corruption, they should certainly report on it. But judges, it turns out, can be every bit, as thin every bit as thin-skinned as presidents, and they have frequently acted to prohibit what they see as damaging attacks on judicial authority. This history dates to the mid-18th century in English common law courts. It was carried over by state and federal courts in the U.S. who asserted similar powers. This led to a famous 19th century case of judicial impeachment, well, famous at the time anyway, Nobody today remembers federal district judge James Peck, but he was impeached in 1830 for his overly aggressive attempts to silence public criticism of his decisions. The U.S. Supreme Court eventually put this sort of controversy to rest, but not until 1941, when it held that given our First Amendment, judges were just going to have to develop thicker skins. If you're going to exercise government authority in a democratic society, then you have to be willing to tolerate harsh public criticism of your decisions. In some countries, judges have not yet made this turn, and we've been tracing the responses to such conflicts by constitutional courts in Germany, India, Canada, Australia, Zimbabwe, and a number of other jurisdictions. Those are just three pieces of a large, interlocking set of collaborative projects that, again, would not have been possible without NSF's support. I wanted to close by returning to the theme of translating science. I'm still early in the life of my NSF grant, so I don't have a lot of experience translating our research findings for the broader public. I've assured NSF that we'll do so, we just haven't actually gotten to that point yet. But I do have two preliminary thoughts, each of which holds some promise, though also some challenges. One strategy is to harness the ability of information technology to make research findings and even the raw documentary data collection as broadly available as possible. My favorite example here is Constitute, 
a joint effort by Google and the Comparative Constitutions Project, to make freely available English-language versions of every written national constitution in the world. That's how I know there are currently 184 national constitutions that protect free expression. Constitute makes these documents not just freely available, but fully indexed and searchable, and we're hoping to do something similar with judicial opinions on free expression. The challenge is that these efforts are extraordinarily expensive, and every dollar spent writing code for a fancy website is a dollar not spent on finding and reading the relevant cases. A second strategy is to involve undergraduate students as extensively as possible in the research. Undergraduates aren't exactly the broader public, but they're closer to it than is the narrow set of university faculty, postdocs, and PhD students who work on some grant-funded projects. The challenge here is that undergraduates don't know very much yet, so there are significant startup costs in training them to produce usable and reliable data. But given NSF's goal of broadening access to high-level mentored research opportunities, it's a challenge that's well worth tackling. To date, our free speech project has employed five PhD students and 16 undergraduates, and the undergraduates have been a significantly more diverse group than the PhD students. In addition, working with the undergrads has kept me honest, in the sense of repeatedly forcing me to articulate our research goals in ways that are comprehensible to non-experts. A couple years from now, I'm hopeful that this experience will pay off when we're regularly reporting research findings to the public. Thomas Keck is a professor at Syracuse University. You can find out more about his cross-national examination of those who have benefited from free expression decisions issued by a variety of courts around the world on our website, lifeofthelaw.org. Tanya Brito is a professor at the University of Wisconsin. She studies the intersection of family law and poverty law and the ways the state regulates family relationships of the poor. I'm going to share a story from an ongoing research project. I've traveled with another member of my study team to a large city in the Midwest. We're there to gather data for the project, and we have interviews and focus groups scheduled. We'll be there for three days. On the first day, I have an interview scheduled with Alex and Robbie, who run the help desk in family court. And those are pseudonyms. As I approach the security checkpoint in the courthouse, I see a line of people waiting, and I get in line to wait my turn. In the meantime, I hear the security personnel speaking loudly and aggressively to people as they approach and walk through security. There are three security personnel, a man and two women. The man is standing behind the scanning machine. Presumably, he's observing the screen as items are passed through on the belt. There's a small table that's adjacent to the machine, and one of the women's security personnel, she's standing immediately behind the table. And she partially leans forward to speak to each person as they approach the security area. Belt, wallet, phone, keys, and loose change go inside your jacket pocket with your belt, she shouts at each person as they approach. Belt, wallet, phone, keys, and loose change go inside your jacket pocket with your belt. Belt, wallet, phone, keys, and loose change go inside your jacket pocket with your belt. Belt, wallet, phone, keys, and loose change go inside your jacket pocket with your belt. Over and over and over again, and each time she's drawing out the word keys for emphasis. As I approach, I see a sign that states that food cannot be brought past security, and I wonder if they'll let me through with the snacks I brought for the interview. I always bring snacks when I'm interviewing someone. It's just a sort of token thank you. I'd stopped at the coffee shop on my way in to pick up refreshments. I'm holding a cup holder. It has three cups of peppermint tea in it. And I have a small brown bag that has um, three croissants. When it's my turn, I'm immediately told, you can't bring that in here. I place the refreshments on the table. And then I try to you know, explain that I'm bringing them in for a meeting with the help desk attorneys. The security staff barely acknowledge anything I've said and just keep repeating, you can't bring that in here. By now, my bag has gone through security because I had put it on the belt, and one of the security personnel reports that I have a recorder in my bag. Now I'm being told that I need a court order to bring in a voice recorder into the courthouse. Really? I just don't understand it. The woman security officer standing in the front was inflexible and very authoritative. She was just like, you're not bringing a recorder in without a court order. Without arguing with her, I tried to explain why I was there, who I was meeting with, and why I had the recorder. It didn't matter. 
when I said that perhaps I could ask the help desk staff to bring the items in for me, since presumably they didn't have to go through the same kind of security rigmarole, she immediately rejected that idea, basically saying that it was still my recorder. I then mentioned that I'd be back the next day for a meeting with the family court judges and that I was planning to bring lunch for them and I'd be having that recorder with me. Again, she was adamant that I was not getting in without a court order. At that point, I tried to reach Alex and Robbie to get their help. My phone call went to their voicemail. So I sent an email and then I just started waiting in the hope that someone would soon get one of my messages and come and give me some assistance. In the meantime, I just stepped out of the side, to the side and I waited. I was fairly calm and certain that I'd eventually get in. Even though I was made to wait, I, I didn't take it personally at all. Mostly, at this point, I was thinking, data. My project looks at the experiences of low-income, unrepresented litigants in family court. Specifically, I'm interested in how they navigate their court hearings, whether and how they access litigation assistance resources, how effective they are at self-representation, how the judges and attorneys that they interact in these court spaces um, handle cases where people are unrepresented. In my mind, their experiences with the court system includes these interactions that they have throughout that entire process, including gaining entry to the courthouse. So I was very interested in the court security staff interactions, their interactions between the security and the public, and then later on how the security personnel were treating me and the staff who tried to get me into the courthouse. I pulled out my notepad and my pen, and I began jotting notes. What did I see during those 30 minutes while I waited to get access, to get entrance into the courthouse? What I observe is a security officer continually berating members of the public and using her authority to insult people. Many people go through security and they don't follow the instructions. Sometimes they forget to take off their jacket. Sometimes they have keys in their pockets. Sometimes they take their keys out of their pockets, but they hesitate. They're not really sure where to put them. The security officer is rude to them uniformly. I hear her say, I told you to take off your jacket. Didn't you hear me? Pay attention. No, go back and put your keys on the belt. When a middle-aged Latino man asks her if he's in the right spot, she sneers and ridicules him. How am I supposed to know if you're in the right spot? I don't know. Right spot for what? Eventually, Alex arrives at security, and I could see that she was asking the other female security officer for me. I waved to her to identify myself. She informed the security staff that Judge Santos had said that they should let me in and that I'd be meeting with the judges tomorrow for a research study. The staff still refused to let me in with that recorder. Where's Judge Santos, someone said sarcastically. Uh, I guess she's in her chambers, said Alex. She raises her hands and lifts her shoulders saying, you know, I'm just the messenger. She then left and I remained there waiting. I start to wonder if Judge Santos would have to show up herself to help get me through security. Eventually, another security personnel arrives to retrieve me. She was a taller woman in her 50s, a black woman. She's wearing a security uniform with a badge that says sheriff written on it. My sense is that this woman is in a superior rank to the staff who are working the security checkpoint, and that maybe Judge Santos had contacted higher-ups in security and dispatched them to spring me from the security checkpoint. I was then escorted all the way to the offices of Alex and Robbie, the two people from the help desk that I was planning to interview that day. When I arrived, they had a blank court order form on the desk ready for us to fill out. And we collaborated on the language. And when we were done, a staff person took that draft order to the judge for her signature. He returned a little while later with several copies of the order, which had been signed and stamped by Judge Santos. The order, titled General Order, states, Quote, for today, March 20th, 2014, and tomorrow, March 21st, 2014, both Tanya Brito and Amanda Ward have authorization to bring recording devices into the uh, Child Support Division courthouse. This is as part of research with the University of Wisconsin. They may also bring food and or drink in with them, close quote. This study, as I mentioned, is looking at how low-income, unrepresented litigants access court and navigate the cases that they're handling. For the project, my study team and I are collecting several different types of data. In addition to doing interviews and focus groups with various 
legal personnel, judges, family court commissioners, attorneys, et cetera, who are involved in these cases. We're also doing observations in court. So we're physically present in court watching the proceedings and the hearings that are part of the study. This kind of work we call this ethnographic observation. So we're looking at social events and drafting detailed field notes that capture those events and what we see and hear and what we, our impressions are and our insights about what those observations are. But before we gather that data, we have to gain access, both access to individual people we want to talk to and access to those court spaces. And as my story shows, getting access even to the courthouse itself can be sometimes challenging. Generally, though, I feel pretty comfortable in these courtroom settings. They're familiar to me. I feel like I belong. I speak the language. That's because I am a lawyer. I now practiced law for several years before I became a law professor. And now I train lawyers. Because of my professional experience, I don't anticipate that during data collection for my project will experience a high degree of difficulty getting access to public courtroom settings and to public court records. Why should we? These are public proceedings, and they're publicly available court records. Easy peasy. You know, after all, I'm not trying to study a group or phenomenon that is inaccessible, that is private, or is somehow elusive, like ISIS. It would be hard to get access to ISIS in order to conduct ethnography. Courts are different, however. And I guess I just took for granted that transparency in court proceedings is an essential component of our civil justice system, and that we have transparency in order for judicial outcomes to maintain public trust and legitimacy. Nonetheless, the members of my research team and I we're continually stymied early on in our project in our efforts to actually get inside courtrooms and observe proceedings. We spend a lot of time navigating um, access and negotiating access. We encounter many gatekeepers at these various um, field sites and settings. The gatekeepers control access. They ask us to identify ourselves and ask us why we want to be in court. We are, of course, upfront about who we are, the nature of the study, all of that. We're not trying to conduct a study that has any kind of element of deception with it. But putting all that aside for the moment, I wonder how they treat people whose reasons for coming to court don't satisfy them. Lower-level staff seem to lack awareness of the fact that these proceedings are open under law and available to the public viewing and scrutiny. There's an unstated sort of culture of restricting access that permeates the settings. Our very first visit to observe child support hearings in one of our field sites was emblematic of this. We couldn't get in at all. There's a, a desk located at the end of the hallway that leads to the hearing room, and the woman who sits there, um, and I'm going to use another pseudonym, her name is Alice, and she's a gatekeeper. One has to pass her desk in order to gain access. The first time we arrive, we are stopped and asked to explain why we're there. We tell her, and she says she has to call the hearing officer to see if it's okay for us to enter. She tells us to wait in one of the chairs in the hallway. We sit there, and we wait patiently. She calls the hearing officer. It's a dimly lit and dreary space with a familiar institutional feel. There are hard plastic chairs, linoleum flooring, fluorescent lighting. I think you get the picture. We wait for a while, and we don't hear anything. And so I go back up to the desk and politely inquire again. Maybe she just forgot about us. She tells us that she left a phone message with the hearing officer, and she's waiting to hear back. We continued waiting for a while longer, but eventually got to be past an hour, and we decided we would go. There's an irony here in that the research study is examining access to justice, and we encounter difficulties getting access to our data. We have trouble accessing the research data that will inform us about the experiences of low-income litigants who try to access the legal system. What's interesting to me is that even those who know better sometimes stand in our way. Here are some more examples to give you a full picture. In one instance, the resistance to our entry took on a physical form. A government attorney placed her body in the doorframe so that one of the graduate students working with me could not enter the courtroom. She told the researcher that he couldn't enter unless he had the permission of the litigant whose case was being heard that day. In that case, the litigant didn't object, but in truth, people aren't excluded from the courtroom simply because of an objection by someone who's a party to the case. In another instance, when a government attorney objected to the presence of the graduate student researchers on my project, the hearing commissioner asked them to leave. When the graduate students returned later that afternoon to observe a different hearing, the commissioner thanked them for leaving earlier, and after acknowledging to them that they had the right to remain, she said she appreciated that they didn't make an issue of it. When I learn of these episodes, I have to restrain that lawyer part of me. That's the part of me that knows my rights, and my lawyer instinct is to advocate for a right to be present. But of course, I'm not there as a lawyer, I'm there as a researcher. My researcher instinct kicks in and says, again, 
data. Everything is data. And so that's what I do, and that's what the members of my research team do. We collect data. And so how has this phenomenon emerged that makes it so difficult to get into courts? Well, keep in mind, these are poor people's courts. There isn't a lot of public interest in these cases. The court staff are simply not used to seeing people unconnected to the case coming into court and asking to be seated in the courtroom. Absent public interest and scrutiny, these types of practices can go unchecked. Also, the low-income unrepresented litigants in these spaces lack power. They aren't treated with the respect they deserve. The spaces are monitored and their behaviors are policed. There's all kinds of signage telling them what they can and can't wear in court, who they, whether they can use their phones, whether they can have any food with them, etc. Perhaps the most egregious example of this phenomenon took place early in the project when we were visiting various courthouses to do exploratory research as we were selecting our field sites. One afternoon, I spent a few hours observing a contested evidentiary hearing. At one point during my observations in court, there's a slow-moving elderly sheriff who approached me. I had been jotting down notes and didn't notice her approaching me. I was looking down at my pad. But I could feel her presence next to me, kind of looming over me. When I looked up, I couldn't understand why she was so close and standing there staring at me. She asked me what case I was there for, and I responded that I was just observing then she told me that there's no writing in the courtroom. I was shocked, speechless. The room was crowded and the space was tight and there was a hearing taking place. So I didn't feel like I could engage her in a discussion about my outlawed note-taking. Sometimes I feel like I'm on the other side now. I'm seeing the experiences that regular, ordinary people have when they go to court to resolve their disputes. My research documents and tries to make analytical sense of their experiences in an effort to understand how they fare in court and what kinds of resources and interventions would be useful to help them more effectively represent themselves in civil cases. The type of research I'm doing, this type of in-the-field research, often referred to as being-there research, is really essential to our understanding of the legal system and the social world in which it operates. Tanya Brito is a professor at the University of Wisconsin. She studies the intersection of family law Jody Quas is a professor at the University of California, Irvine. She studies the world of children in the legal system and the effects of that stress and trauma on their early childhood development. Uh, this is really a daunting task for an academic who is usually tied to PowerPoints, data, and very cautious interpretation of findings. So to prepare, I did what any good academic does. I conducted research. I watched the other talks in the series, I surveyed scientists about ways to talk about their work to diverse audiences, I talked with our advancement office, and I talked to colleagues who had spent time at federal agencies about describing their work to different agencies and different individuals. The overwhelming advice was, quite simply, make it personal. Tell a story. Tell about an experience that shaped your emerging interests. The story draws in the audience, and it really can give credibility to what you say. Well, that's really great advice, but here's the problem. My work concerns maltreated children's functioning and abuse disclosure, as well as their participation in the legal system. I have never had any such experiences. I grew up in Chicago with my mom, my sisters, and my brother. My mom was a baggage handler for Eastern Airlines, which really meant that I spent most of my childhood flying standby to all sorts of places around the country, getting bumped and having to sleep in airports while we strategized about how to get five of us back home on different airplanes. My dad lived in Oregon, so I didn't see him much growing up, but I'm really close to him now. Moreover, my parents, my siblings, were always supportive of one another. We had enough food. We had a roof over our head. We had clothing. My mom's car worked well enough to get her to and from work every day and helped her pick us up after whatever we had going on. I was never exposed to any form of maltreatment whatsoever. So I don't have a personal story. How then can I draw people in to care about what I say? Well, here's how. I tell the children's stories. These are the stories that keep me up at night. Their stories drive my work, and they drive all that I do. 
Hopefully, when others hear these stories, they too will be motivated to help make a difference in these children's lives. So the story I'm going to tell today concerns a defendant's constitutional right to face his or her accuser. Now, most of us, if asked, would probably say that this right is paramount to the pursuit of justice. Requiring an accuser to testify in court lets the defendant, the jury, judge, all evaluate uh, the accuser, um, see how he says it, and hence evaluate the veracity of his claims. What happens, though, when that accuser is a child? Should this right to -to face-to-face confrontation still hold? Now, maybe this is a slightly more difficult question, but one could argue that just because an accuser is a child is not the grounds for abandoning a defendant's fundamental right. Taking the stand might ensure the child tells the truth. It might also allow others to evaluate critically what the child says. Well, what about when the defendant is a parent or a step-parent accused of sexually abusing the child? Should face-to-face confrontation be maintained? Well, here's where most of us begin to get slightly uncomfortable. The thought of a child facing her parent in court really does cause us concern. Although perhaps if pushed, some of us would still argue that facing one's accuser outweighs that concern. But let's take this one step further. What if a child alleges sex abuse by her father and he is representing himself, a pro se defendant? Assuming he's of sound mind, he is indeed allowed to represent himself. However, should this father be allowed to question his child in open court about alleged sexual abuse that he committed? What would this do to the child psychologically? And what would this do to the pursuit of justice? Well, this isn't a hypothetical exercise. This is a description of a recent case in Arizona. A relatively well-known public figure, Chris Simcox, was accused of sexually molesting his daughter and her friend on several occasions when they were ages five and six. Simcox elected to represent himself and, in accordance with his Sixth Amendment right, demanded the right to question his accusers, the two young girls. Now think about this for a moment. These girls would have to answer questions in a public, intimidating, austere courtroom in front of a large number of strangers about sexual abuse posed by the person who allegedly carried out that abuse. And this person is one of the girl's own father. The situation is almost unimaginable, and virtually every reasonable person is almost in shock about this situation occurring. As you might expect, the prosecution, in conjunction with the Victim Advocates Office, tried to find a legal way of blocking the defendant from being able to question the girls in this manner. The prosecution specifically argued that having the girls testify constituted a form of secondary victimization of witnesses, which fits with an Arizona law prohibiting witness intimidation and harassment. In order to make this argument, though, the prosecution needed support. So they turned to science. Fortunately, there's a body of research that has investigated the effects of testifying and legal involvement on children, and I have been lucky enough to carry out some of this work. As you might expect, taking the stand in sex abuse is quite anxiety-provoking to children. In fact, taking the stand is the part children report fearing the most. Even before children testify, the anticipation of doing so is linked to high levels of distress and anxiety in children. Once children actually take the stand, this as well is linked to a host of negative outcomes, such as heightened anxiety, depression, and even acting out tendencies. These problems emerge shortly after children testify, and they remain for months and sometimes even years later. These effects, moreover, are in addition to consequences and problems that arise strictly from the maltreatment or the abuse itself. I should note that these problems aren't evident in all children who testify. Certain conditions increase their likelihood of occurring. These conditions include first, when children testify multiple times, and second, when children testify against a parent figure, as would be the case with Chris Simcox. In other relevant work, we have found that high levels of stress while being questioned about past events lead to difficulty communicating, 
poorer actual memory and increased suggestibility. This means that when children are extremely upset while they're trying to answer memory questions, as would likely be the case when an eight-year-old is questioned about sexual abuse by the person who allegedly did it, their ability to answer questions completely and accurately drops, leading to potential errors, inconsistencies, and even confabulations. The research, therefore, clearly supported the prosecution's argument. Allowing Simcox to question the girls in court would likely not only be highly traumatic to the girls, but it would not help the legal system pursue justice. Given these rather straightforward connections between the prosecutor's claims and science, what happened? Did science prevail? Well, maybe in the long run. Specifically in the Simcox case, the prosecution indeed attempted to block the defendant from being able to question the victims himself. The prosecution appealed to the Arizona Supreme Court. The appellate court, however, remanded the case back to the lower court because of a procedural issue, putting the decision about the defendant's right to question the witnesses back in the hands of the trial judge. The prosecution then brought in an expert, one of my colleagues, to describe findings from the research concerning the effects of testifying on children. In addition, I provided reviews and summaries of relevant literature as additional sources of support. All of this was, again, intended to block Simcox from questioning the children directly himself in court. None of it seemed to be working. It appeared that the trial judge was going to allow Simcox to go forward with the questioning. This spring, though, in a strange turn of events, Simcox changed his mind and allows, allowed his advisory counsel instead of himself to question the children. Simcox still questioned directly the other witnesses in the case, and while the two girls were questioned, he was still present and visible to the girls in the courtroom. Nonetheless, the girls did not have to answer questions posed by him, the defendant, directly. The actual trial began in spring, and in June of 2016, Chris Simcox was found guilty of sexually abusing his daughter's friend and showing pornographic material to a minor, uh, for which he received at least 19 years in prison. So given that our work didn't directly persuade the trial judge in this case to find an alternative means through which the children to, could testify, why do I think that perhaps our work had an impact? Well, perhaps it persuaded the defendant just a little to change his mind. More generally, though, I believe that the research's exposure grew considerably. The judge, attorneys, and others in the case are now much more aware of the work than they had been previously. The case made national headlines. Amicus briefs and scholarly reviews have been written on the topic, and legal scholars and policymakers are now openly talking about alternative models of presenting evidence from children, seeking input from scientific researchers like me as to the benefits and the risks of different models. Changes to the legal system are really slow, and they don't come gradually. Instead, high-profile events or cases like the Simcox case can oftentimes serve as catalysts for change, leading to sometimes paradigmatic shifts in legal practice in very short time periods. As scientists, we need to be ready when these opportunities present themselves, and we need to be prepared to communicate our findings in an understandable and useful manner. I believe we were in the Simcox case. We were ready and we were able to communicate our findings. When children have been witnesses to or victims of crime, it's imperative to the pursuit of justice that these children's accounts be heard. Such accounts, though, have to be elicited in a way that promotes accuracy and helps with the pursuit of justice. For some children, this may simply not occur if children are questioned in open court. Other ways of conducting interviews and obtaining information with the, from those children need to be more developed and they will be more valuable with these particularly vulnerable witnesses. As I mentioned in the beginning, I don't have a personal story to tell. My childhood was so different than the lives of the maltreatment, maltreated children who end up in the legal system that I could never say that I understand what they have endured. I can, however, 
pursue research that, at its very core, is designed to help identify victims and intervene on their behalf. And I can work hard to communicate the findings from this work to policymakers and practitioners to have a direct effect on children's lives. If I do this, I hopefully can tell better stories in the future about these children, or at least stories with better endings. And that is something we can all understand. Jody Quas is a professor at the University of California, Irvine. Karamet Reeder is a professor at UC Irvine and studies prison systems and how the actual experience of being in prison and the policies that shape those experiences vary dramatically by culture. It's an honor to be here today, especially because I imagined myself never getting a PhD, uh, becoming a researcher, or receiving funding from an agency like the National Science Foundation. Uh, because I started my career as a prisoner's rights advocate, actually. Uh, I worked doing prison litigation and prison policy work for places like Human Rights Watch. But from the first cases I worked on at those advocacy and litigation organizations, I noticed that we lacked information on basic policy questions. Uh, For instance, in California, we didn't know how many prisoners had disabilities and needed disability accommodations. Uh, In Massachusetts, we didn't know why prisoners were being sent into solitary confinement. And then when I was working at Human Rights Watch, we didn't know how many kids had been sentenced to life without parole before they turned 18. These kinds of questions surprised me that we didn't have this basic data. And the and the juvenile life without parole issue at Human Rights Watch was a particular turning point for me. Uh, there, I was working as a research assistant, and I was thinking about whether I wanted to go back to school and what kind of graduate degree I would pursue. And I was working with a researcher on a report on this issue of juvenile life without parole. And it seemed like a really good issue for Human Rights Watch to take up. There's clear international law that sentencing kids to life without the possibility of parole before they turn 18, violates international human rights standards. So it seemed like a good issue to write a report on and and do advocacy work on in the United States, given the clear standards. But it turned out we had no idea how many kids across the United States had received this sentence, what their racial breakdowns were, what kinds of crimes they'd committed. And so we had to do the work to gather that information state by state and jurisdiction by jurisdiction. And that process uh, really inspired me to think that maybe this kind of research and data analysis was something I would enjoy doing more. So after that report was published, I applied to law school, but I decided to go to a place where there was the possibility of getting good research and methods training. I went to the University of California, Berkeley, that had a PhD program that did criminal justice-related studies. But I kept one foot in each world there for a few years. I I did work on death penalty cases, uh, worked for a federal public defender, but also started doing a little bit of research. Uh, For a a term paper and a graduate seminar, I requested information from the California Department of Corrections about basic statistics about people in solitary confinement in the state. So as someone who'd been doing research and advocacy work around prison issues, I knew that solitary confinement was a place where we didn't have much information, and maybe it would be another one of those places like juvenile life without parole, where there there would be room to uh, gather interesting data, learn more, have a better foundation for making policy recommendations. Uh, so I made this request to the California Department of Corrections just about basic descriptive data. Who was in solitary confinement in the state? Uh, how many people were there? What were their average lengths of terms of time in solitary confinement? What were their average ages and racial breakdowns? And a few months after I made the data request, I got, uh, and a a few nagging emails later sent to the Department of Corrections, I got a data file back. uh, And I was was excited. I had had something to, to base this term paper on. And I started flipping through the file, and I saw some things that didn't necessarily surprise me that much. Uh, I had a sense from having done a little background research. You know, prisoners were spending an average of at least one year, often two years, in solitary confinement. Uh, There were more African-American and Latino prisoners in solitary confinement than in the general prison population, so it was having a racially disproportionate impact. I'm flipping through the chart, and then I found a really surprising table. It was a table of the number of people being released monthly directly from solitary confinement onto the streets of California. And it turned out that it was dozens of people per month. 
So at the time, this was nearly 10 years ago, people weren't really paying attention to solitary confinement in the United States, to the conditions and policies. And this was really surprising to me. And it was something that advocates didn't even know to ask about, let alone to think about what kinds of policies we should have in place for people being released directly from solitary confinement onto the streets. Uh, So that single chart really was a, a second turning point for me in thinking about the importance of gathering basic research data. Uh, but it also paralyzed me. I held it in my hands, and I wasn't quite sure what to do with it. My first instinct, as someone who'd done advocacy work, was to turn it over to advocates and put it on a website and publish it immediately so that people could see this irrational policy, that the state of California had these people that it said were the most dangerous, but it was releasing them directly onto the streets with little transition. Um, But then I stepped back and I thought about it, and I thought that that kind of information could easily backfire and be misused. It might not create better policy. It might create worse policy. It might encourage people to think that we should never let people out of isolation. We should never let them back onto the streets. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought that that information was really important to contextualize and to understand better how California got to a place where there were thousands of people in conditions of long-term solitary confinement and hundreds of them a year were being released directly from those conditions. And that was the beginning of my dissertation. That was the moment when I really committed to being a researcher, to finishing that PhD, to trying to understand better where those policies came from and, and what the history was of these kinds of policies. Um, so I was I was shifting then from building a, a legal and ethical argument about what was right and wrong to a much more descriptive argument, just understanding uh, the background of how solitary confinement came into being, how it operated day to day, thinking and hoping that those interventions might might later down the road frame policy if someone could take that data and use it. Um, so that, that experience of literally holding a piece of data in my hand that was at once surprising and interesting, but also in need of careful, rigorous interpretation, solidified my turn from advocate to researcher. But the transition wasn't easy. Uh, my academic is- interest in the history and uses of solitary confinement became politically relevant a few years after I began that research when prisoners in solitary confinement in California started a statewide hunger strike protesting the conditions of their confinement and the long terms they were spending in isolation. Uh, this was in 2011, so I was a few years into my dissertation research. At the time, solitary confinement was not receiving the kind of national and international attention it is today. In fact, people didn't really know that much about the practices and Pelican Bay, California's major supermax facility that had 1,056 solitary confinement beds, was not the kind of household name it's become over the last few years after the hunger strikes. Uh, so I started getting calls from even as a graduate student from national journalists saying, what is Pelican Bay? What are the conditions like there? Can you explain to us a little more about these facilities? And I also started getting calls from advocates I'd worked with over the years saying, why aren't you out there in the streets protesting in support of these guys who are, who are participating in these hunger strikes? Have you joined the ivory tower? And I realized, in a way, I had. In the process of trying to uncover what had happened, how California had come to have these thousands of isolation beds, how prisoners were spending such long periods of time there, I'd been conducting oral history interviews with prison administrators who had been working on prison building and prison policy in the 1980s when these facilities were first built. And I was sensitive to the fact that they would probably stop talking to me if they saw me out at these protests supporting these hunger strikers because they were talking to me on the assumption that I would listen to them with an open mind, that I would be able to convey and analyze their stories and their side of what had happened with these institutions as a researcher and not as an advocate. And because they were talking to me, I was gaining a new understanding of how these institutions came about and the different arguments on on various sides justifying them. And and I thought that that information was vitally important to understanding that question I'd started out with. How do do we get thousands of people in these conditions and how do we think about how we treat them? Uh, So uh, I realized that the research hadn't neutralized me, but it was it was helping me to realize that there were more sides to the argument. And it was important to me that I maintain that that researcher status and not be out there at those protests. 
Uh, so I finished my dissertation. Uh, I continued to do this research. And in my first year as an assistant professor, I had a new opportunity to try on this role as this neutral expert. Uh, as a result of, of the hunger strikes those prisoners had participated in in California that had first brought attention to these conditions of solitary confinement, legislators in California were holding hearings about uh, what to do about the conditions in isolation and whether reforms might be possible. And they invited me as someone who'd been studying these issues for a few years now to come testify about what I had learned and what I thought might be possible in terms of reform. I thought carefully about what I wanted to say. And the central point I made when I testified was that we needed more data and more transparency. That I, as a graduate student, receiving that information that dozens of prisoners a month were being released directly from solitary confinement, in a sense, was ridiculous. That's something that I shouldn't have had the right to kind of interpret and make sense of and be surprised by. That was something that should have been general public information that was being published regularly and that people um, across the board could kind of analyze and make sense of how to, how to use those facts to, to make better policy. So I made this point about the the importance of better data collection and transparency and the kinds of things we might learn and how that might help us to think about different policies. Uh, and I stepped down from testifying. And the, the next person to testify stepped up. It was a former prisoner who had spent eight years in solitary confinement in California. Uh, and the first thing he said was, we don't need to research anything. We already know solitary confinement is torture. In that moment, I realized that I was never going to stop navigating that space between research and advocacy, that there were always going to be these really important debates about whether research was important or whether advocacy was important. And there were always going to need to be these conversations about whether we were collecting data or whether we had enough information. Um, but I think that actually talking about these stories and having these conversations, acknowledging that there is this really challenging space between research and advocacy is part of what's really important about doing this work. Uh, and for my part, as I've continued in my career as a prison researcher, supported again and again by the National Science Foundation, studying supermaxes in California, and more recently uh, looking at open prisons without walls in Denmark, I always think about choosing the topics where we know the least, the ones where there is a need for basic data collection before we can even think about what the ethical questions are, what the advocacy uh, agendas should be. Um, so I've in choosing those topics, I think it's really important to think think about those questions. Where where do we where do we know the least, and where can we collect and analyze data that facilitates transparency, accountability, and better policy making? I think, in a sense, my response to people like the prisoner who testified after me at the legislature is, we do need these critical resources of data collection in order to help citizens exercise their rights to vote on candidates and policies, um, to facilitate administrators uh, who have discretion in implementing policies, facilitate them making better policy decisions, to give judges and legislators better information with which to design policies. But in order for those goals to be achieved, the relationship between data analysis and social applications of that analysis must be acknowledged, uh, interrogated, and constantly renegotiated. Kermit Reeder is a professor at UC Irvine. Ryan King is a professor at Ohio State University, and he studies criminology, law, society, and punishment. The way that I, that I think about my role as a translator of science has changed over the course of my career. I'm not sure it's any better now, and perhaps I've even moved from one form of naivety to another, but it has changed, and today I'll share this evolution in my thinking through two stories, one on the lighter side and one very serious. Neither was a singular turning point for me, but rather each illustrates the way that I thought about translating science about the law over time, and each starts with a phone call at my office. About eight years ago, I was an assistant professor at the University at Albany, and like most young faculty, I was looking to make a name for myself in the profession. And at the time, I had this idea that translating science about the law necessarily meant taking difficult concepts and research findings and making it intelligible to the public, with the media serving as a necessary intermediary. 
You might say, in some ways, I was every bit that cliche of a graduate student turned young assistant professor who so badly wanted his research covered in the New York Times or to give that NPR interview. So one afternoon, I get a call at the office, and on the other end of the line was the producer of a radio show. Uh, specifically, it was the Lou Dobbs Syndicated Radio Hour. And he said the day's show would be about mass imprisonment. This was right after the Pew Charitable Trust issued a report that one in every 100 adults in the United States was behind bars. And he asked if I'd come on the show in about a half hour to speak with Dobbs on live radio. Why not? I knew who Dobbs was from his show on CNN, uh, although I can't say I'd ever watched a full episode, so I really didn't know exactly what to expect. But, uh, but hey, live radio sounded fun. And it was fun indeed, but in large part because it ended up being kind of a comedy of errors. Uh, for one, I would find out later that they didn't even have the right guy for the show. Uh, some of you who listen to this may know there are actually two Ryan Kings out there that study this stuff. Uh, and so I think they Googled the name and they got Ryan D. King at the University of Albany instead of Ryan S. King, who at the time was at the sentencing project and knew a lot more about this material than I did. A second blunder was entirely on my end. I had about 30 minutes before we went live, so I took out my notebook and studiously started taking notes and anticipating the first question being something like, so, Professor King, how did we get here? I had my four-point answer all planned out and my references lined up and everything. Uh, in other words, I was prepared for NPR, and Dobbs was not. So imagine my surprise when the first question out of the gates that he throws at me is, Professor, this is unacceptable. I think we ought to let everyone out of prison tomorrow. What say you? Well, I didn't exactly see that one coming, but yeah, I kind of pushed my notes aside and freewheeled it for a while, and it actually went okay. Uh, Dobbs and I went back and forth, and he'd give me the ivory tower a bit, and I'd respond, and he'd try to bring up immigration, and I'd try not to, and, and so on. And so it was all well and good, but then towards the end, we took a couple of phone calls. And without going into tremendous detail, that was the point at which I felt a bit uncomfortable and I'd almost say even inadequate, at least as, a, as an expert on the material. The first caller uh, was someone who, if I recall correctly, had an acquaintance or someone with a, a personal connection uh, in prison and was looking for advice or something that would relate to her case. Now, going back and forth with Dobbs and balancing his hyperbole with cool facts was easy, and I would come to realize over my career that this is quite an important aspect of translating science. But relating research to an individual's problem was incredibly hard. I talked my way around the caller's question, but at the end of it, the larger question loomed. How do you translate research in a way that is meaningful to the very individuals who are caught up in legal institutions? This question would hit me again about five and a half years later when I got another phone call at the office, this time at my office in Columbus. I had, uh, I had since moved to Ohio State. This time it wasn't a producer on the other end of the line. It was my mom. And I knew, I sincerely knew, I knew from the sound of her voice that that quiver in her speech as if she really didn't want to say what she was about to say, that I was about to hear one of two things. Either your brother is dead or he's in big trouble. And thankfully it was the latter. See, my brother is a good man. But like many good people, his life would be thrown off course the first time he popped a prescription oxycodone into his mouth. One pill led to two, and two to four, and soon enough, he was addicted. Badly. It didn't take long for the dominoes to fall. He lost his job, marriage dissolved, custody of his son, and the drug addiction would soon be compounded by alcohol. And this was tough to watch. This was a guy who taught me how to throw a curveball and told me where to take my first date out for dinner. And he was sort of a hero to me as I grew up. So it was tough to watch. And so it was a whole new kind of pain to see his life spin out of control at never faster pace for a decade before he was arrested for a serious crime, ironically, by officers of the very police department that employed our father for 30 years. And then his story hit the newspapers, and it's funny how you notice little things that you would never, that would never make me pause if I were reading a newspaper article about someone else, but that you really notice when it's one of your kin. You focus on every word, such as the reference by one reporter who claimed that he had, quote, failed treatment. Uh, I remember thinking to myself, failed treatment? Failing treatment is when you drop out. When you relapse, that's because the treatment failed. 
or the anonymous comments that appear online by that ever-cheerful group of Americans who anonymously write their comments to these stories, such as Madman68, who wrote that the four-year sentence was, quote, easy time. There was an irony at play throughout all of this as well, and this is the, the key point of the story. At the very time that this ordeal was unfolding, I was in the process of writing two research papers that would eventually end up in print, one on criminal sentencing, funded by the National Science Foundation, and another paper on what happens to their kids when their dads go to, to prison. So there was this strange coincidence between my personal and professional lives. Professionally, these papers were making their way through the review process and even getting the intention of some media and even the London School of Economics blog. Well, personally, my family and I were trying to figure out what we could and should do regarding my brother's court case, his eventual sentencing, and how all of this would affect my nephew. And so it was humbling. It was a humbling moment for me. Uh, it, it's easy to feel like an expert when you get invited to blog for the London School of Economics or to see your name in the local paper, but it's harder to take yourself seriously as an expert when you can't even help those who are closest to you. It was kind of like that caller on the Lou Dobbs show, but this time I shared a bloodline with the caller. And so that question creeped up again. How do you translate this research to make it matter for people caught up in the firm grip of the law? I wouldn't say that I had any epiphany about this, but I did have a moment last summer when I actually felt more at ease with this issue. I was speaking to my brother on the phone, one of those maximum 15-minute calls punctuated halfway through by that recorded message that reminds you that everything you say is being recorded. Uh, and we were talking a bit about post-release stuff, and I offhandedly mentioned something that, you know, the people that I work with really stu study uh, what happens to people or, uh, when, they, when they leave prison, uh, ex-felons in housing, voting, employment, and so on. And just knowing that there's an enterprise out there that is devoted to keeping this set of issues in the public sphere and trying to ease that transition back to society seemed to really matter to my brother. I think there's something to be said for the mere presence of a group that condemns the sin but wants to clear paths of redemption for the sinners. And I was struck by the fact that merely knowing this seemed to mean a lot to him. To that end, through, uh, through my academic engagement with this set of issues, uh, I found it easier to break down barriers that enable those with felony records to, to maybe let their guard down a bit and speak more freely. Uh, just being familiar with the topic and the set of issues that they have to go through seems to bring a certain comfort level in discussing the next steps, their fears, their failures, and hopefully future successes. Throughout all of this, I've come to appreciate how I've also come to appreciate how personal stories such as this can aid in what I've come to see as the number one way in which we in academia can translate science about the law, and that is through our teaching. Think for a moment about how many people that is, students for whom you've played the role of translator of science. Showing PowerPoint slides serves a purpose, but wow how their attention focuses when we can relate a broader pattern to a personal story. And indeed, earlier this semester, I was sharing some of the above, uh, and a student approached me with excitement after class because she had just helped some ex-felons register to vote that day, and she credited much of what we had talked about in class. So I began the story by mentioning an evolution in my thinking about translating science about the law. For many years, I had underappreciated how important the thousands of little interactions matter in the classroom, at parties, and even on the prison phone. I've come to realize that the endeavor to scientifically study legal institutions, at a minimum, conveys understanding and a degree of empathy to those caught up in the legal institutions. And that matters. Thank you. Live Law, Law in Translation, was a special co-production by Life of the Law and the National Science Foundation's Division of Law and Social Sciences. Our senior producer is Tony Gannon. Our post-production editors are Kirsten Jesuits-Heidel and Rachel Kane. Our engineers are Jim Bennett and Katie McMurrin of KQED Radio in San Francisco. Music in this episode was from the Audio Network. We want to thank each of the storytellers for reaching outside their scholarly comfort zone to share personal stories that allow us, the public, to better understand what it means to be a federally funded scholar and to research the law in our society.
Special thanks to the National Science Foundation. If you'd like to find out more about the NSF and get information about presenting a proposal for research, go to our website, lifeofthelaw.org. If you'd like to work with Life of the Law to co-produce a live law event in your town, at your university or organization, reach out to us at connect at lifeofthelaw.org. You can find all of our episodes, stories about bail, juggalos, the courts, and immigration on iTunes. Take a minute to post your review, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Each time we publish a new episode, we send people who have subscribed to our newsletter a behind-the-scenes look at Life of the Law. You can subscribe to our newsletter at lifeofthelaw.org. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the National Science Foundation, and by you. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a very much appreciated donation to help pay for the direct costs of producing our episodes. It just takes a minute. We'd like to thank Stephen Miller, Neville Fernandez, Osagio Basagi, Blake Rodman, Helen Tour, Betsy Dar, Bill Epling, and Andrew Stickle for their donations. Next on Life of the Law, we're beginning In Studio, a once-a-month in-studio conversation with our team of lawyers, producers, and scholars to get to the heart of what our reports have uncovered, the law in the news, and what we're working on behind the scenes for our next investigative report. Join us next time for In Studio at Life of the Law. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter at lifeofthelaw.org. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.